Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, uh, for your justice. We come before you this morning and we just ask that your truth will be made clear, that we will accurately see our broken state, um, that we will see our need for a savior. Uh, You see us when we have nothing to offer on our own and yet you extend to us the invitation of your son, Jesus Christ. May we be reminded and encouraged this morning of your goodness and your desire for us to be united to you in faith and to see you. May you be glorified in the reading and preaching of your word. Uh, It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Amen, well you may be seated. Here's some rain outside, thankful to be indoors here. And uh, hey, the Lord's mercies are new every morning, just like the rain. So here we go. Uh, We will be continuing this morning in our sermon series as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and looking at the Beatitudes. And uh, I love that our church in the month of July, we get to have kids. Like looking out here, I see so many generations. Any kids out there, raise your hand. We'll give you guys a little shout out. Yeah, all right, nice. Good, we'd love to see you guys. Uh, I'm a teacher, so this morning I got a little visual representation Uh, I think the kids will love it. I think the older people will like it too, right? It'll be something good that we can hopefully take with us. But before we get into that, let's go ahead. Let's dive into our passage, Matthew 5, 8. Um, Earlier, Blaine read for us the first eight verses, setting it all up. But today we're going to be camped out in verse eight. So it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And our central truth this morning is that the righteousness of Christ, it allows us to truly see God. And that's pretty short and sweet, but we're going to take this morning to just fully unpack that. So the first question we need to ask is just looking at the first half of the phrase, you know, what does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean for us? What did it mean for, you know, the Israelites? All those questions. And uh, I did a little bit of research. The word pure that Jesus used in the Greek, it is katharos. And what that means is that it is free from contamination um, and that there is nothing being added, right? And so to the Jewish people in those ancient biblical days, when they would have heard that, they would have been thinking about all the laws that God gave them to keep them away from germs and to keep them clean. And they also would have been thinking about the spiritual matters, to be clean from sin in their own lives. I have a two-year-old son, his name's Michael, and uh, right now we're doing a food allergy treatment plan with him. And we have to figure out creative ways to get him to eat like weird foods, like lentil powder and mustard powder that tastes horrible. And what we have to do is uh, like, since he's little, we'll cut a gummy in half and try and hide those little specks in there. And then we'll close them up and we'll give it to him. But he's, he's a little stinker. Like he will take it and he'll literally pick it up and look at it to see if it was cut in half, to see if in his mind it was contaminated in any way. And to make sure that he's getting a pure gummy, which he's not. Um, and I know, you know, this kind of falls short of a perfect analogy because my two-year-old is not God. Uh, But what we do often is we try and hide our sin. Um, We try and, you know, keep it just covered up. Uh, We have hidden, unpure motives. But God, he discovers all of it. He sees all of it. He knows our true state. Um, Right now, what I'd like to do is just look at Psalm 24, three through four, because I think David sets it up really well. He asked this question. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So I don't know about you, but when I read that, you know, those verses and I hear clean hands and a pure heart, my first thought is I don't have this, right? I am not capable of attaining this on my own. All of us, we miserably fall short of this standard. Uh, we need God for it. 
D.A. Carson, I read a great commentary by him, and he asks some really good questions. Again, I just want to share with you guys the probing diagnostic questions that we should consider as we dive into this for the morning. First one is this. Uh, he asks, what do you think about when your mind slips into neutral, right? So like, what are you daydreaming about? Where does your mind wander? You know, what does that reveal about yourself? And then what do you want more than anything else? Like what idols might we have in our lives that we need to give to God? To what extent are your actions and words accurate reflections of what is in your heart? That one really cuts deep. Like, you know, does the external match the internal? What's going on? He also asked, to what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what is in your heart? So for me, one of the hardest issues um, that I deal with is is honestly just taking a look at my motives. Um, Lots of times I find it's sometimes even easy, like to do the right things because I know I'm supposed to do them. But then I'll kind of question like, okay, well, am I just doing it out of impure motives? Is it stemming from pride? Am I trying to get some type of, you know, appreciation or something from someone else where I should just find that in Christ? I'm sure all of us today, we can think about different areas in our life where we're out of step with the word of God. So uh, the first point that we're going to kind of look at, I'm going to go through a little survey of the Bible because we got some time, right? Uh, We'll go through some of the Old Testament, some New Testament. And the first thing we'll do is we'll look at the Garden of Eden. All right, so back at creation, and for those of you like, where did the jars come in? Here they come. So the first jar, it says us, um, and we're gonna you know, kind of think about Adam and Eve and all of humanity. That's gonna be represented by that jar. And initially, right, Adam and Eve, they were created pure. They were without sin living in the garden. But for those of you who know Genesis 3, we know it did not take them long at all until sin entered the world, until they gave into the temptation, they ate that forbidden fruit. So we're gonna use this discolored jar that says sin, And uh, we're going to see that when we pour it in, depending on where you're sitting and the lighting, uh, it discolors it, right? So it makes it darker. That is what happens. That's the bad news, right? Sin entered into our lives. So what next? We're going to kind of fast forward a bit through the Old Testament. Let's look at Moses, right? So Moses, during his time, the Israelites, they had just been led out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. um, And God had miraculously rescued them. They're waiting to go to the promised land. And yet they just keep on sinning. They keep rebelling. Even though God is choosing to extend his covenant to them, they're still sinning. Uh, In the book of Leviticus, which how many of you out there kind of like to skip over that in your Bible reading plan a little bit, right? Uh, It's a good book if you understand the, the purpose of it, right? So God in Leviticus, he's handing down all of these purification rituals. He's giving them to Moses to then give to the people. And what we see in Leviticus is that God knows that his people are unclean. And so he's setting up these purification rituals, um, these things for them to do to deal with their uncleanness. We see uh, that Moses um, in Leviticus 11 through 14, like there, it goes through a bunch of things. I'm not going to read all those chapters, right? But the headings, uh, if you will, in Leviticus 11 through 14, Moses is given these purification rituals for like there are laws for eating clean and unclean things, uh, purification after childbirth. There's laws for leprosy. There's laws for bodily discharge. There's laws for cleansing your home. And when, uh, when I went to Israel a couple of years back, um, I was able to see all these ancient ruins of mikvahs. Um, I don't know about you. I didn't know what a mikvah was, but a mikvah, M-I-K-V-E-H, um, it was basically dug into the ground and there'd be seven steps that go down to it. And there's a collection of water. And what the Israelites would do is they would have to enter these mikvahs as a purification ritual to make themselves ceremonially clean so that then they could worship in the temple. Like if you go to Israel, there's over a hundred mikvahs just along the wall of 
uh, Herod's old temple, which shows us that the Jewish people really took these rituals um, seriously. They knew that purity was a big deal. Now, for us, uh, you know, the good news is like, we don't need to enter mikvahs because Jesus is our mikvah, right? Jesus is the one that we go to to be made pure, who cleanses us. And uh, we also see that the mikvahs, they were supposed to be connected to a source of living water, like a spring or a well. And Jesus says in John 7, 37 through 38, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So these laws, these rituals, they, they would culminate for the Jewish people on the day of atonement. And at the day of atonement, during the time of Moses, Aaron was the high priest. And what he would do is he would make an atonement for the sins of all the people. Uh, Leviticus 16, 20 through 21, it kind of gives us the, the strongest example of spiritual cleansing in these verses. It says, and when he, he referring to Moses, I'm sorry, he referring to Aaron, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So again, I don't know about you guys, but I think it took me till I was an adult till I realized the term scapegoat, right? It actually comes from this passage, right? So we have Aaron who would place his hand symbolically on the goat to let that represent the sins of the people, even though the goat didn't do anything wrong, right? It's not like the goat was sinning, it's an animal. And then they would just lead the goat out in the wilderness to die. And the good news for us is we don't need to, you know, stroll over to some farm and find a goat and put our hands on it for our sins. Like we see that the scapegoat, it points um, typologically to Jesus because Jesus, he is the one who took on the sins of the world, who took on our sins, who took on our impurity so that we could be made clean and brought back into a relationship with him, right? He died on the cross, taking our place. Later in the Old Testament, we read a great passage in Ezekiel. And I love this passage because it shows that God is the one who removes our sinfulness and allows us to be pure. So these words should be on your screen. It's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is God speaking. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? So one of the things I love about this verse is the clear language that it is God who is giving us a new heart. It's God who makes us clean. It doesn't matter if we're just trying to work our way to our own godliness, like that doesn't work. It's God who needs to be the active agent there. Despite, despite the purification rituals, um, the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament, we see that David writes in Psalm 51 that God, his biggest concern was not just with the external sacrifices. It says that God's true desire was that we would have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17, it reads, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so we saw this in, in week one of our sermon series that blessed are the poor in spirit. It is this realization that we have nothing to offer God on our own, that we are broken before him, but yet he is the one who can make us clean. Um, 
we see that even in the New Testament, the Pharisees, like they're a great group of people who probably did not understand this verse because our next point is this. The Pharisees, they were focused on being externally pure. Okay, everything was all about being externally pure to the Pharisees. So getting back to our primary text, Matthew 5, 8, you know, we see here that it says, blessed are the pure in heart. It does not say blessed are the pure in actions or blessed are the pure in their outward appearance. The Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they were consumed with their external actions. They were kind of self-righteous religious leaders and they would even add on laws to try and make themselves sinless, which kind of sounds good. Um, but really what they were doing is they were elevating their own thoughts to being higher than God. And honestly, like for us as a church, we need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap either. Right? There, it's so easy to kind of take our own preferences, our own thoughts and elevate them to a place that they shouldn't be that's even higher than God. Like legalism, that can strip us from the joy that is to be found in Christ. So last week, I think Taylor shared a parable where we saw the Pharisees, they were even making like showy prayers. It was all about attention on themselves, trying to give these big offerings just for their own praise. And so we need to make sure that we're checking our own impure motives in all aspects of our lives, right? I mean, we are called to give financially, but we need to make sure we're not just doing that out of compulsion or we're not trying to do it for some type of you know, notoriety. Uh, we're called to be on volunteer teams at our church. Like that's a really good thing, but we need to make sure we're not just doing that for man's praise or just to kind of fill ourselves up with something that we should run to Christ for. I love the verse in Be Thou My Vision, um, the great hymn. It says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. Right? And so what we see here is we're not just called to try and live lives of comfort or just praise from man, but we're called to root our identity in Christ. Getting back to the Pharisees, we see uh, Jesus, he doesn't mince any words. Like he calls them out pretty hard in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. So I'll read that for us here. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are clean. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." So Jesus here, he's making reference to a lot of the purification rituals that we just looked at earlier. And his main point is this, it doesn't matter what you're doing externally if on the inside, your heart is impure and unclean, right? The Pharisees were just doing things as a show, even though they were spiritually dead on the inside. Jesus, his sharp indictment against the Pharisees in Matthew 23 is actually you know, a follow-up to another encounter he had in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees, they were getting all up in arms about uh, Jesus and his disciples not following the man-made extra laws of the elders that had to do with washing before meals. Jesus goes to say this in Matthew 15, 17 through 18. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. For any of you kids out there that are still listening, uh, yeah, Jesus just made a poop joke there. So there you go. Um, and he goes on to say, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person, right? So it's the inside of us that really reveals our impurity, the condition of our heart, which brings us to my favorite point, because now this one's gonna be all about Jesus. Um, and we see that Jesus is the one who examines the heart 
and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Okay, so Jesus examines the heart and his righteousness is imputed to us. So first let's look at the heart. The Israelites, again, it's good to put it in context. They would have understood heart to be the seat of desire, thought, and motive. Um, The heart is really what we are in the secrecy of our feelings and thoughts when the only one who knows what's going on is God. We read in 1 Samuel um, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of man, but that he looks on the inside. He looks at the heart. There's a really good quote from John Piper. I think this one's in your worship guide as well. It says, the aim of Jesus Christ is not to reform the manners of society, but to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. So what we see here is that Jesus, he did not come to earth just to help us break our habits. He came because he is after our hearts. Jesus, he didn't just come to earth so that we can feel like we're enough. He came so that we would know that he alone is enough. Jesus didn't just come to the earth so that we would feel good about our good works and get gold stars. He came to show us that all of our good works on our own, they're like filthy rags in his sight that only he can redeem. And Jesus, he did not come just to give us a behavioral modification. He came to give us a heart transformation. So if Jesus is saying that the heart is what defiles a person, and uh, we all have realized you know, that we are not pure on our own, then the big question is uh, how do our hearts become pure, right? What happens? And what we see is, uh, this, my, it's probably my favorite theological concept, it's called imputation, right? And there's this kind of, I did a little research, the lengthy uh, legal definition of imputation, I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. It says, it's an action factor quality the knowledge of which is charged to an individual based upon the actions of another for who the individual is responsible rather than on the individual's own acts or omissions. And that's pretty long and a bit confusing. So here's what it means for us. Here's what it means in terms of salvation, right? I know that was long. I'm sorry. You don't worry about that quote's not as important, right? That definition. Here's the main point. Jesus, he looks uh, when we are found in Christ, right? When God looks at us, instead of seeing our sin, instead of seeing all of our shortcomings in the past and the present and the future, God looks at us through the righteousness of Christ, right? The lens that he sees us in is that we are attributed the righteousness of Christ. He sees the finished work of Christ on the cross instead of our own sin. And that is incredible good news for us, that it's not about us just manufacturing this purity within us, but it's about receiving Christ and letting him do that work. So Paul writes a bit about imputation in Romans 4, 5. This is what he says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So again, we see here, it is not based on our own works that can earn us any righteousness. We can't work our way to a pure heart, right? It's God who justifies the ungodly and he counts our faith in Jesus as righteousness. Um, There was an evangelist in the 1700s named George Whitfield from England, and he has a really good quote about imputation. So this one should be on the screen. He writes, Christ's whole personal righteousness is made over to and accounted theirs. And when he says theirs, like he's referring to Christians. So hopefully that is us who are found in Christ. They are enabled to lay hold on Christ by faith and God the Father blots out their transgressions. I just love that language of blotting it out. As with a thick cloud. In one sense, God now sees no sin in them. By having Christ's righteousness imputed to them, they are dead to the law as a covenant of works. Christ has fulfilled it for them and in their stead. So this is incredibly good news because we know that the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked, um, that we can't fix it on our own. And yet God takes our dirty heart and he's able to make it clean. 
So in this first half of Matthew 5, 8, we have seen that it is those that are pure in heart are the ones who have found their righteousness to be in Christ, that God is the one who purifies our heart. So now let's move on to the second half of Matthew 5, 8. Um, let's look at what does it mean to truly see God? All right, so the second question is, okay, if we know what it means for pure in heart, how do we truly see God? And uh, before we look into how we can truly see God, I think it's, it's good to point out that on our own, um, we can't initially see God. R.C. Sproul, he has this quote. He says, our inability to see God, it's not a deficiency in our eyes, but it's a deficiency in our hearts. God will not allow himself to be seen by those who are impure. All right, so we see that God's true essence, it cannot be fully seen on earth because we're an impure people. The reason that we can't you know, fully see through this, this jar isn't because um, there's something wrong with our eyes. It's because the water has been tainted by sin in our life and it's, it's darker, right? We're, we're not clean on our own. The definition for see, like the Greek word for it is horeo. And it doesn't mean that we're just kind of looking at someone or like seeing, like the way you guys see me now, like that's not what it means. Like to see, it means to stare at and to discern clearly. The Hebrew idiom for this word is closer to mean to experience. When I was in college, I took a course called Civilization of the Arts. And in it, we looked at a lot of paintings. And initially I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. Like I'm not really an, an art guy. But what we would do is day in, day out, we would, we would stare at them um, and the teacher would guide us and point things out. And I, I learned that as I went through it, I appreciated it more. I was able to discern it clearly. Um, I was even able to go over to France and walk around the Louvre, which is an art museum. And I was just there for hours, just looking at it. And I went from just seeing something to discerning it clearly and even experiencing the art. And you know, if we can do that with, with art and a painting, how much more so does that apply to what we will be able to do with God, right? It's saying that we should be able to discern clearly God and in a more fuller way experience him. In a sense, everyone will ultimately see God. Um, in Revelation 1-7, it writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So in this verse, we're seeing that it's everyone, both the believers and the unbelievers who will see him um, at the judgment seat of God. But in the Beatitudes that we're looking at, when it says see God, it's more of the favorable meaning. So it's something that is of benefit. Uh, Revelation 22, four, John goes on to say this, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So again, to the Israelites, the, the idea of seeing, like think about what it would have meant to see a king in the biblical days. Right? Only the close family members or the distinguished guests would be the ones who could see the king face to face. And this is what we're promised, that in heaven, we will get to see face to face the king of kings for all of eternity. We'll now do a little bit of parallel structure here. So let's uh, look back at the Garden of Eden. So we looked at that initially for the pure in heart. Now let's look at it in terms of seeing. And uh, what we can uh, see here is that Adam and Eve, they initially walked with God. Okay, so Adam and Eve, they initially walked with God. They were able to see him. In Genesis 3, 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So this verse, it's implying that, you know, previous to them sinning, that they would have been accustomed to walking with God. It shows us that God's original design was for us to see him and to be in an intimate relationship with him. But when we sinned, that was broken. It was severed, right? God's original design, um, it, 
it wasn't able to continue that way and we were gonna need something else. So again, let's kind of look through the Bible and see how things get set up. Jumping ahead to Moses, we see that Moses was not allowed to see the face of God. Even though Moses was a man who had a very unique and intimate relationship with God. I mean, he was able to meet with him in the tent of meeting and talk with him. He ascended Mount Sinai and received the law, the 10 commandments. And yet God tells him in Exodus, I think it's 33, 20. He says, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Earlier this year, Taylor, he was preaching on Isaiah six. And we see that when Isaiah comes before the presence of God, the first words out of his mouth are, woe is me, I am a man undone. So we see that God was not uh, you know, revealing himself in the same way to, to his creation throughout the Old Testament. He was still speaking to them, but he wasn't living with them. They weren't seeing him face to face until Jesus, right? We know that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the son of God. And he came down to earth. He broke into the unsettled scene of humanity to live life on life with his creation so that we can see him. And it's, in, it's pretty fascinating, you know, that the group of unschooled fishermen, the disciples, um, they were the ones who recognized Jesus. And yet the Pharisees who were highly educated and religious, they did not recognize who he was. And that leads us to our next point, which is that the Pharisees, they did not see God who walked among them. Okay, so they did not see God who walked among them. The Pharisees, they didn't recognize Jesus as God probably because they were just too caught up in their own religion. Um, I sometimes find it hard to believe that they could have missed it or that they could have been so blind to it, that they were caught up too much in their doing. And then I kind of think about myself and I'm like, you know, how often do I just have this to-do list or this busyness that I miss moments of the day when I can just tangibly see God or see how Jesus is at work in and through his people. Um, and so that's, you know, the encouragement to us. Like we, we sang about it earlier. It said, turn my eyes away from searching for lesser glory, like turn my eyes. And so we are to turn our eyes to Jesus. Our next point is getting on to Jesus. So here we go. Uh, the Pharisees, I think they were missing the fact that Jesus is the door for how we see God. So Jesus is the door for how we see God. Jesus is God. He lived among his people. He said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the only way to God the Father is through him. We see that, jo that Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Right, so we're promised that if we are in Jesus, we will get to be with God for eternity. I love this image that we see in 1 Corinthians. It's a really great word picture here uh, where Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So this verse, it shows us that here on earth, uh, you know, we will see, we'll catch a glimpse of God for those of us that are in Christ. But in heaven, that's when we will be able to fully experience and see God face to face as we're with Jesus in all of his glory. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, um, it comes from Psalm 37, 4. And I think that this verse ties in with both of our main points from today's message. It reads, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your own heart. And here, David, he's not expressing, you know, that God is like some type of genie that we'll just get everything that we wish for and want. But what he's saying is, well, the order of these two phrases is important, right? The first phrase is that we need to delight ourselves in the Lord. And this type of delight in the Lord, it really comes from living out the Beatitudes. So I love the order that Jesus gave the Beatitudes. I know we've talked about this week in, week out. Um, hopefully you still find it pretty interesting as, as I do. So 
as we look at all of the Beatitudes we've read so far, right, we see that if we realize that we are poor in spirit, that we have nothing to offer on our own, that then we will be able to um, see God, we'll be able to mourn over our own sin and live in meekness. And this should humble us and cause us to thirst for righteousness. And today we see that this will all culminate in us being pure in heart in the eyes of God through the righteousness of Christ. So getting back to Psalm 37, four, you know, we see that when we find our delight in the Lord, he will cause our desires to be more in line with his and that in doing so, we'll see God and the work of his hands here on earth. And we will have this eager anticipation for when we will get to be with him in heaven and when our faith will be made sight. So how do we respond to this? Uh, three quick points for us just to, just to consider here and spend some time dwelling in. The first one is we need to confess our impurity, right? Hopefully we all have seen that we are an impure people and that we need Jesus. So the first thing is we need to recognize Jesus. He came to earth to die for us because we could never earn purity on our own. Right? There is no way for us to get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. So if anyone, if you haven't done so yet this morning, if you haven't submitted your life to Christ to submit to his lordship and called on him as your savior, I invite all of you in the quiet of your own hearts or even later with someone from the prayer team, just call out to him, give your life to Christ. It is the best thing that, that we can do. And for those of us who have already done that, um, we're all gonna continue to sin, right? So we are called to still confess our impurity, to draw ever nearer to Christ, who is always quicker to forgive than we are to even ask for it. And this leads us to our next response. So the next one is this, we should receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Like this is the great news that after we've confessed our sins to God and we've placed our trust in Jesus, uh, we get the privilege of receiving his righteousness that is attributed to our account. First John 3, 3, it reads this, and everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. So again, it's not that we're doing the purifying, but when we are found in Christ, that is what is going to be making us pure. So for those of you that have been waiting for me to get back to the jars for the kids out there, okay, here's a good time to look up, all right? This is gonna be the cool part. So we see that this jar, you know, it was, it was a little blue, wasn't doing too hot with all of our sin, um, but we see that where sin made us dirty, it is Christ who makes us clean. There you go. The power of bleach or Jesus. <laughs> Um, I love the verse in Isaiah 118. So God says this, he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So it is God who makes us pure. And as I said earlier, like we're still gonna end up sinning. You might not be able to see this as well, but you know, even as we sin, like if our relationship, if our identity is found in Christ, he will continuously just make us pure in the eyes of God. Our third response is that if we have truly experienced this righteousness, this freedom in Christ, we need to invite others to see God, right? If we have truly been able to see God ourselves, let's invite others to see him. Hebrews 12, 14, it reads, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this verse, it means that after we've received the holy righteousness of Christ, we should live our lives in such a way that will point others to Christ both in our words and in our actions, right? We wanna tell others about the good news that we have found in him. It's remarkable that even though it's God who brings about the salvation, the saving power in our lives, he invites us 
to be part of his mission that we get the privilege of telling others about him. All right, we don't have to be the ones that save them because that's God, that's the Holy Spirit in their life, but we still get to play a part in that. So my prayer is that we will leave here encouraged and emboldened to take Christ to those we meet. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we bless your name. Um, Lord, we acknowledge our brokenness and our impurity before you. We place our trust in the righteousness of Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our place and that you are the one who has made us pure. We eagerly await the day in heaven when this purification process will be made complete and we will see you and worship you for all of eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.